Welcome to the Love Fly podcast. Paul Tizard, fear of flying coach for the last 25 years and today's special guest. Uh, for those who follow him on Instagram, you'll be delighted to meet Captain Chris. Welcome. G'day, Paul. How are you going? Very good. Yeah, I love the uh, the <laughs> the proper greeting. Then, good day. Love it. Good day. Yeah, I could, yeah. I could do the airline captain. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I could do that voice as well. Which one do you want? Oh, well, I, well I, I know you get special training to do the the airline <laughs> voice. <laughs> uh, so, Chris, as well, tell us a little bit about your kind of why we all know you now and uh, your journey to date to. The fact that I think I don't think we ever crossed paths when we were at Virgin, but I do believe that you know quite a few people that I know as well. So yeah, we, we could play that. Do you know this person game yes. all day? Yeah. I mean, we know yeah. everybody, and, and aviation's like that. It's actually quite a small industry, and a lot of people know each other, even in, in different airlines. So it's not it's not as big as people think. It is a, a very small industry. Um, but the question was, how did I get to be on your podcast today? Well. We all know about the pandemic and what a terrible time it was. At the beginning of the pandemic, Virgin Atlantic had just taken delivery of a brand new aircraft called the Airbus A350-1000. Mm. Um, at the same time, my daughter was playing with her mobile phone, as young teenage girls do, and she was fiddling around while talking to her mum and listening to me, which girls can do. They can do all these multitasking things. And I said, what are you doing? Because it was, it was annoying me. She was fidgeting. And she said, oh, on the gram. And I went, the gram? What's the gram? She said, Instagram, Dad. I went, yeah, I've heard of that. What is it? And she said... I'll show you. And she showed me her phone and it was pictures of makeup and fashion and handbags and shoes. And I went, well, that's not for me. She goes, no, it's got other things. Look. And she typed mm. in Airbus and up came a picture of an Airbus A350. And I went, wow, wow, show me some more. And though she said, look, I'll set up your own account because you're boring me now. So she set up me my account on my phone <laughs> and I started looking at pictures of airplanes. And I thought, wow, with this new airplane we've got, I could put some pictures of the cockpit online and show people what this fancy cockpit looks like. And, and then I started getting what they call followers, people who like looking at these pictures. Mm. And I found that a lot of them were um, aircraft spotters that were actually taking photos of the outside of the aircraft while I was taking photos of the inside of the aircraft. And it was really good because they love the photos from the outside. I'm uh, sorry, the inside. I like the photos from the outside. And when we did some training up at Glasgow, there was quite a lot of plane spotters there that were regularly taking photos of our and videos of our takeoffs and landings where we were doing training for training some of our pilots onto that aircraft type. And it sort of grew from there. And I remember there was that funny moment when I got 400 followers, which was more than my daughter. And I said, hey, look, look how I'm doing. I've got 400 people that follow me on Instagram. And she was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And then um, at the start of the pandemic, I think I had about 1,000 followers. And again, on the scale of things, I thought, that's a lot of people. There's a 1,000 mm. people who mm. like to see pictures of airplane cockpits. And then the pandemic happened. And I was at home and I thought, this will probably last a month, like probably you and everybody else yes. thought. Then after two months, you start getting worried. And then as it goes into the third month, you think, oh, how am I going to pay for the mortgage? And all these other realis mm. realistic things start hitting you. And I put out my, I was home um, in, in France with my son and I, he made me do a picture where I was standing up holding a sign above my head, which said, buy airline tickets like you bought toilet paper. Because at the start of the pandemic, people were rush buying on toilet paper and the, the supermarkets were running out of toilet paper. So I thought, I'm going to try and promote aviation by saying, go and buy airline tickets like you bought toilet paper, just exactly what the sign says. And hopefully people start 
buying tickets and this will motivate people to go flying and it might help the industry because again i'm thinking like you and everybody else in the world this will be over in a couple of months so if people start buying tickets this will give a, a bit of trust in the airlines and the airlines yes. can plan for the future and get going again well as we know that didn't happen like that the the pandemic worsened airlines had to ground fleets and then ground staff and people lost their jobs. There was furloughs and things like that. And, and many, many people found themselves on the ground. So I then found myself with maybe, say, 20,000 followers thinking, wow, I've got a real responsibility here. So mm. I changed the tack a little from just not taking just fancy pictures. So can um, I just I, ask you, sorry, Chris. So no, no, no. that was an interesting comment there. You just said you felt responsibility there. So something shifted for you by the sound of it. Yeah, I did feel the responsibility because remember when people were losing their jobs, they, they were friends of mine. These are not mm. just colleagues, they're friends of mine. People that I've worked with yeah. were now finding themselves out of work. And I felt the responsibility because I had this medium, which I didn't really know how it worked, called Instagram, where I could send the message. And so I, when I was still flying, because I was, I was one of the lucky people who remained flying, and I'd be, I'd be flying to Los Angeles, I would show a video saying, here we are in Los Angeles. Here we now are in Hong Kong. Here we now are in Johannesburg and we're flying vaccines. We're flying COVID test kits. And I just wanted to show people that we are still flying. The airlines and the airlines are still flying in, in a small way. And by doing that, I felt like I was giving all of them a little bit of hope that this will end. We're not sure when, but it will end and yes. you'll get your job back and you'll be doing this just like I am. And I think also, I mean, it sounds a bit over the top, but I felt a certain amount of survivor's guilt Mm. The fact that I was still going to work every day, all right, and they were wondering how they were going to pay their mortgage. Now, the furlough was good for a while, but eventually a lot of people did lose their jobs. Yes. And again, that responsibility came back on me to remind them, guys, I'm doing everything I can. I'm staying current. I'm training pilots. And then I went into the training pilot thing because pilots did start coming back about a year ago from now because a lot of the airlines were realizing, hang on, this thing is not going to last forever. We need to get our pilots back up to speed. And so I was training from last June, June 21, I was back in the simulator regularly, uh, retraining some of these pilots that had lost their jobs or being grounded on furlough or whatever. And, and I was absolutely flat out training pilots, yeah. all basically over the past year. And then, and more recently, I've been grounded just for some medical reasons. I've just calculated today, I've trained over 75 pilots in the last five months getting them back online, just yeah. 75. So, that's a, a so, huge so just rewind a bit, that's really interesting. So the pilots that came back, that had been off for a while, what was their mood like? It was a mixed mixed feeling. They they obviously didn't like to be, lose their jobs in the way that they lost their jobs. And they felt, some, some of them had, a, again, everybody's different, Paul. Some people were really upbeat about it. They found some job or career that they'd always wanted to, to take up and they were able to do that. Others found that they loved a year or two home with young children. Mm. Um, they really, really enjoyed that time and, and they know that they're, they're never going to get that again. And others were well, not, not so much bitter. They were just like, oh, you know, I just want to get back flying. I just want to yeah. get back flying. Yeah. But as soon as they're in the simulator, it was unbelievable. It was like they hadn't left. Um, you know the expression riding a bike? Every single one of them, every single pilot turned up at the simulator and I, I looked at them. I said, I know exactly how you're feeling. You go, why? How do you know that? I said, because I've trained so many people after over the last year, and I know that your biggest concern is jumping in that simulator and looking silly. Well, guess what? You're not going to. Mm. And every single one, and they jumped in there, and yeah, they were a bit rusty with a couple of the radio calls and a few of the procedural calls, but after the first four hours in the simulator, they were all up to speed. It was amazing how quickly they came back. And then, obviously, we didn't give them one simulator. They got like four 
four or five simulator sessions and a test before they then went out and completed line training again. But every single one of them was as good, if not better than they were prior to the pandemic, because they had this thing in their head that, right, I'm coming back and I'm going to want to be as good as I can be. And it was, yeah, yeah. It was incredible to see that. And it's just a what real sort credit. of gap, you know, so because they're coming back. So that how long were they out of check then? Um, a year to two years. Wow. Somewhere anywhere in between that. And it was really interesting, Paul, because every time I'd be in the briefing room, I'd actually have to start the briefing with, Paul, can you tell me your COVID story? Right? Because everybody was in a different situation. Mm. Um, you might have gone off and flown for, uh, what do they call them, European air cargo, flying an A34600. So you're current because you're flying an Airbus. Other pilots have gone off and flown uh, turboprop aircraft or piston engine aircraft or done flying training on little Cessnas right? Some people hadn't flown at all for two years. And it was interesting that all of them, every single one of them was no better than the other. It was just the ones that have been flying more recently, yeah. they were more up to date with maybe procedures and so on. So what would you put that down to? I think professionalism. I think you don't become an airline pilot and you don't get into a large airline and fly big jets unless you've got several thousands of hours. And mm. during those several thousands of hours, you, you get, you learn what we call airmanship. Right. Airmanship means you've got a, a good common sense feeling about the whole of aviation and, and what you're there for and, and what your tasks are. So you've trained a bunch up. You're, you're now doing that. It sounds like you're doing that quite a lot of the time. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's the main part of my job at the moment because I've been I, I, I went off end of last year. I was just a bit stressed out. We had family issues going on as well. I then broke a finger just out gardening, a bit, bit hazardous gardening. Um, I broke a finger. That was another two months off. Then I had an operation. More dangerous than flying. Of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More dangerous than flying, doing the gardening. And and so I got my medical back two months ago, but I'm indispensable in the simulator at the moment because there are so many pilots uh, returning to the skies mm -hmm. and the simulators are running 24-7, getting these pilots back into the sky. So um, I've been flat out doing that. And it's only now that next month I've got on my roster a few flights where I'm actually back in the simulator so he's going to have to train me or untrain me and then i'll be back flying myself and i should be flying middle of august and then flat out during september and the rest of this year actually operating flights again yeah that's really good that's good to see you back out there again and you'll be no doubt doing some more of your instagram stuff as well so so a couple of things that caught my attention so one is from a fear of flying perspective so these people have been because this is a question that's come out so people have been for some that haven't been flying and that they've just been like delivering a cardo or whatever they've been doing and uh, they're coming back you said they they'd go through about four or five simulators so talk me through the sort of the thinking behind that okay so when they first come back we give them what we call a refresher sim and we give them um, two to three refresher sims. Each simulator session is around about four hours. And it's not just four hours, it's an hour and a half of briefing to remind them you know, of procedures and things that may have changed. And then we do a four hour simulator session and then normally half an hour or even up to an hour of debriefing depending on how much information they wanna, wanna talk about. So you're looking at a six hour day and that's getting wow. to work. So it's a six hour session, four hours in the sim and uh, two hours of briefings. And we do say they do two or three of those with an instructor like myself or another instructor. And then they'll go into a two day test. So it's another two, four hour sessions with briefing and then debriefing. So it's quite intense. So there's, there's five full days of work and they don't normally do it in five days. They'll normally do two, three or four days of simulator. Then they'll have a couple of days off to, to think about it and revise. And then they get their test, which will be two days, what we call an LPC OPC, a license proficiency check 
and an operator's proficiency check. The license proficiency check, the CAA requirements have their license signed to say, yes, their, their ability is up to a standard that they can fly this A330 or A350. And then they do an operator's proficiency check, which is the airline saying, yes, they can carry out all our procedures to a, a standard, which is the highest standard available for the airline. And then we also put them through just belt and braces, I suppose, expression. We then give them what's called a line orientated evaluation. So even after they've been signed off, we give them another two days in the simulator to just run them through some um, emergency situations in a what we call a loft situation. In other words, a, in a line situation, rather than being in a simulator, taking off, having an engine fire and sorting that out. We have them in the cruise and we give them, uh, we have a, a series of scenarios which they're not expecting and we just throw them at them and see how they deal with them. And it's just a, it's more of a confidence boosting for them as well to, to remind them that they're actually doing their job very well. Mm. You know, they, we, we just throw things at them and they, they deal with it. They either get the aircraft on the ground or divert somewhere else or whatever the scenario might be. And they walk out of that sim just feeling unbelievably confident think, yeah, do you know what? I actually am good at this job. And that's really what we do it for. Just to yeah. remind our pilots yeah. that, you know, all that training is worthwhile and you, you can't put a price on training. Mm. I, I, I totally agree. And one of the things that might be just quite useful as anyone's listening to this and perhaps hasn't thought about the simulator train, would you just sort of like rattle off the list of disasters that you put them through? Because most people's fear of flying list, all the stuff oh, that you do in the sim is yes. is the stuff that they get tested on. But just to sort of prove it, and it's not my, just not my words in hot air, just give, tell us some, a bunch of stuff that they have to go through and... Um, so we'll, we'll do things like we'll start off with something simple. And again, remember, every single one of these scenarios has never happened to any of our pilots. It's like the, we, we, what we can do in a simulator is we can create the absolute worst, <laughs> worst case scenario. And, yeah. and we can just throw it at the pilots and say, right, deal with it. So a, a nice, simple starter would be where, say, we're flying from Bombay or Mumbai back to London. We're over some high terrain in Turkey somewhere. And um, we call from, we can do everything. We can call from the back of the cabin as one of the cabin crew and say, hi, captain, there's a loud noise at the R4 door. One of the doors is making a loud whistling noise. How loud? Well, it's quite loud. And then the pilots will look in and they'll see that the um, pressurization system is not doing its job properly. In other words, there's a leak somewhere on the aircraft. And now that somebody's called and said that there's a noise there, maybe the rear door's leaking, right? And again, people who are fear of, scared of flying think, oh my God, this is terrible. The pilot simply increase the airflow in the cabin and that normally sorts a problem they might go to a lower altitude and then once they've done those things i think right i'll, I'll up the degree of difficulty so i make yes. the leap bigger and then bigger and bigger so we end up with a depressurization scenario where the pilots then have to not dive dives a strong word but they have to descend to a lower altitude rapidly they put their oxygen masks on themselves just to protect themselves and all they're doing is they're trying to get down low enough so that the oxygen masks in the cabin don't fall down because once they don't once they come down everybody in the aircraft is going to panic because they see a mask in front of their face and they think oh i've got to put this on mm -hmm. but if the cabin doesn't go above fourteen thousand feet they don't need their oxygen masks on they're none the wiser the aircraft the aircraft gets down to a safe altitude it diverts to another airport and everybody's happy it's when the yes. when the we call it the rubber jungle falls down that's when people might get scared and that's the sort of thing that we want to try and avoid or we always try and avoid because it's all about safety and it's all about um, people not feeling anxious. You know, mm. a lot of people, this is your department, a lot of people are anxious flying and they, they don't need to be because the training that we give our pilots is, is second to none. And we give them the, the worst, absolute worst case scenario and they still, they still sort these problems out. And that's, 
that's as bad as you could ever give somebody when you just keep up upping the, the leak rate. So they have to keep descending, but again, staying above all the high terrain and then diverting somewhere. And they just, it's just a, a pleasure to watch pilots doing this and, and everybody can do it. They can all do it. Yeah. And they sit there and they get on the ground. They look a bit proud then. They think, how was that? And you go, yeah, well done. Fantastic. All right. <laughs> That's we'll brilliant. something else for you. And we just, yeah, we just keep giving so, them these. So what else? What else? Because the, this, um, these are great. These are all questions that come up time and time again, because okay. I reckon what we should do, right, we, we can have a double act. I'll get all the nervous flyers that listen into the podcast and say, write, write your list of, of things that you're worried about. And I'll pretty, pretty much guarantee it matches your list of things that you test pilots on. Oh, absolutely. Another one we did last week, pilots were flying along the cruise. I called them up. This is again, a, a made up scenario. And I said, oh, we've had a call from the airport that you've departed. They've put the wrong fuel in your aircraft. That would never happen. But I've said that, so they've put the wrong fuel in. Just as I said that, I, I pressed a couple of buttons in the um, simulator, which made the fuel filters clog in the engines, but not on one engine, on both engines. And then a little while after that, I failed both engines. So both engines stopped working. I mean. That's never happened, but it did happen in the simulator the other day. Now, I'll tell you what, those pilots, they put it into a nice glide, they turn directly to the nearest airport. And remember, a lot of people that are fear of, or have a fear of flying don't realize an aircraft is a glider. Every single time you descend in an aircraft, it's gliding, every single time, right? When an aircraft gets to its destination, about 120 miles out, the pilots will bring the thrust levers back to idle. When the thrust levers are at idle, the airplane is a glider and it mm -hmm. glides to its destination. It's only when they're putting the flap and the gear down that the pilots need to bring the power back up again just to keep the aircraft stable for the approach in case they need to do a go around. But effectively, all aircraft and every time you go flying, the aircraft is gliding. So anyway, these guys lost both engines, so they put the aircraft into a, a normal glide. In a glide, I've just said, you can go about 120 miles, and that's a long way to go in an aircraft. That's nautical miles, 150 statute miles. And during that time, they will then attempt to restart the engines. So they'll start one engine, then the next one, then the next one, then the next one. When they get to a lower altitude, they can start the auxiliary power unit, which is the APU down the back of the aircraft. Once that's going, they get more electrics and they also get an extra supply of air, which will assist with starting one of those engines. Obviously I gave them one of the engines back so they could extend their glide. I never gave them the second engine back. So they continued into Ahmedabad in uh, Northern India, another airport they'd never been to before in their life. And they diverted into this aircraft quite safely in a thunderstorm as well, because I thought I'll... Of course, yeah. Something that wasn't enough, really, was it? Uh, uh, yeah, another degree of difficulty. <laughs> and did you let both pilots live, or did you kill one of them off? I mean, no, 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 no. <laughs> having, having said that, sometimes we do do that. I, I can speak into both in either of their ears individually, and I can call them and say, right, um, you've had a heart attack as well now. And so, you know, I'll just throw that in just for a bit of fun, just to see how the other guys react. So, yeah, you've now got Does a Does the word attack. bastard mean anything to you, yeah, Chris? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've said worse. But um, so you've now got a pilot landing in a single engine airplane at an airport that they've never been to before at night in a thunderstorm on their own, and they still do it. Mm. And if, I mean, this is what I try to say to people, that the people that are flying you, they've done this. They've seen these scenarios, and they've seen it worse than you could ever imagine on those air crash investigation programs, which normally just one little thing happens and they mess it up. And I'd, I'd say to anybody, stop watching those programs because it's sensationalizing things yeah. that happened back in the 70s and the 80s. You know, pilots are trained better these days. Aircraft are safer these days. Aircraft don't have mechanical failures anymore. That's that's a fact. You know, it's normally human human factors, we now call it. And it's yes. about training people to avoid those human factors. And that's what mm. we do in this data. Mm. Well, you're doing a great job. I mean, that, if that's not enough to whet people's appetite. So is there anything in an aircraft that you think 
you would worry about? That I would worry about? Well, it's the same worry that you'd have on the ground, all right? And it's probably the worst case scenario. And again, the worst thing you could have on the ground and the worst thing you could have in the air would be a fire, any sort of fire, whether it be a fire in the cabin, whether it be fire on engine, but that's the worst case scenario. And that's just part of the world we live in. And obviously aircraft are designed in a way that they don't catch fire. I mean, every single part of an aircraft is designed to be um, flame retardant and flame proof. We have, I don't know how many, uh, what do you call them, uh, fire extinguishers on board the aircraft. You know all about that and where they're located. Mm. So it's very, very rare. It has happened, but it's extremely rare. And here's, here's another way of looking at it. And I say this to guys in the simulator. In fact, I only said it yesterday. Um, we have a thing called emergency electrical configuration, okay? In other words, you can shut down all the electrics on board the air aircraft. All airliners can do this, and the airplane will still fly perfectly well. The fuel pumps will still pump fuel into the engines. The engines will still turn, and you'll still have some basic instruments to navigate the aircraft along your route safely. So why would you ever need this situation? Well, if you did have a, a genuine fire on board the aircraft and know where it's coming from, maybe from the avionics bay or something, so, and I put the analogy, if you're, if you're in your home and you put some toast in the toaster and then you walked off to another room and then you got distracted by the washing machine that was making a noise, then you put some stuff in the tumble dryer. And then by the time you get back to your kitchen, it's full of smoke. What do you do? Do you lower the altitude of the kitchen? Do you decrease the temperature of the kitchen? Or do you just go to the main fuse box and switch it off? Because that's the best thing you can do, mm -hmm. right? Take away the source of the fire. So if there's a fire on board an aircraft, the first thing we do is we take away the source, and that might be the electrics. And then we start working out where the, where, where the smoke's coming from, put the fire out, remove the smoke using air conditioning systems, descend to a lower altitude, and maybe divert, or possibly definitely divert. So again, these are the scenarios we work through with pilots as well regularly, like every, every week. Mm. Talk to, we have Captain Steve Ball on here as well. Yes. And uh, obviously, that's his background. He's taken a bit of a break from it now, but he's he's a like you sim sim instructor, sim tester, sim trainer, all the different terms. And I love all that because I think it's very reassuring for people to think of how much is going on. And one of the things that Chris said to me when we were arranging this, he said, well, "I don't really do the fear of flying stuff. You know, that's your domain." He said, "I train pilots and I." do a lot of stuff with the social media as well around raising the image of aviation. I said, well, actually, you've been doing a lot to help Nervous Fires because I know there's a lot of people in this group and that listen to the podcast that follow you on Instagram. So you've been helping people without realising. I think I have because I do receive a lot of DMs from people and they say they have a fear of flying and they say thank you very much mm. for just producing what I produce on Instagram and showing people basically what goes on behind the cockpit door. And I think what that's one, from my point of view, the one of the main things that can create anxiety towards flying is just not knowing. It's, it's like if you're in the back of a taxi and there was no glass between you and the taxi driver, you'd be nervous as well because you think, what's going on up the front? I can't see yeah. the traffic. Yeah. You know, and, and that's something you know about. You know about cars. You know about being on the road. So being in, a, in an aluminium tube, you know, 10 miles high, flying at 500 miles an hour, it doesn't seem right but it's completely safe and it's completely, um, we, we train, overtrain and overtrain and overtrain. And it's just, it's probably the safest mode of transport. Like I mean, you probably say as well to people, getting to the airport is the most dangerous bit. Once you're at the airport and you're on board that airplane, that's the safe bit where you can sit back, you can relax, you can watch your movie, have a glass of champagne or whatever you want to do and just relax, knowing that when you get to the other end, it's going to be stressful again. So yeah, enjoy the flying bit because the flying bit's the nicest bit. Yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, so let's, let's talk a bit about your 
the famous Captain Chris stuff. I mean, you're like an icon now, aren't you? you remember that? I do remember that the toilet roll thing. That was yeah. I saw that all over um, social media and stuff. But so I understand how you sort of started as a bit of curiosity, and you thought oh, I could educate people, and then and then you've got started to get followers. You've started to feel this sort of sense of responsibility. responsibility yeah. yeah. But what, what keeps you going now? What keeps me going now? It's actually interesting. Really good question. So I was doing it to promote the airlines. I was doing promote aviation and I was doing it mainly to support people that were grounded who were thinking, will I actually get, ever get my job back? Mm. Now that people are coming back and they've got their jobs and the airlines are going, you know, there is boom time again for the, for the airlines. And I, I do feel sorry for the airlines trying to get as many people they can on flights with also trying to get pilots, cabin crew, ground staff, everybody trained up and, and going again. It's, it's a difficult job for everybody and everybody's involved at the same time. But I've changed tack a little bit that I just want to commit complete, uh, sorry, continue promoting aviation. And I've changed the tack where I have so many young pilots contact me, guys and girls all around the world saying, I want to become an airline pilot. How do I do it? And they see my picture, they see my videos, and they think it's easy. And I just remind them, I said, it's not easy, but it's very, very worthwhile. And, you know, you just need to ch take it one step at a time. And, and I think I love the whole fact that I can inspire these young people to, to mm. get into aviation, to show them. So my main thing is inspiring people. My second one is educating people. And that's where you come in as, as well, that a lot of people that ask questions possibly are anxious of flying. And yes. so they ask me questions about how do you do this approach? Why do you do this approach? Why do you fly at this altitude? How, how long do you spend in the cockpit at any one time? Do you sleep on board the airplane? And all these other questions, because they're, they're obviously they want to know this. Mm. So I try and answer all those questions as well. So I, like I said, I like to inspire, I like to educate, I like to motivate people to either get on board an airplane or take up aviation, whatever that might be. And also I chuck a little bit of um, entertainment in, make it a little bit fun. Because again, it's a, it's a social media, and if you don't have a bit of fun, you're not doing it properly. So they're, they're my main pillars, I suppose. You know, inspire, motivate, educate, and you know, make it fun. You make yeah. it fun. Entertain. <laughs> Entertainment, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I've been watching, I've watched some of your stuff because uh, Hannah was the one that alerted me to you. Hannah uh, looks after the Instagram stuff because I'm rubbish on it. And so I've had a look at it, and I just think I've kind of been really impressed. I mean, I know you can fly, and that's pretty impressive in itself, but being able to do all that stuff. So that must have taken you ages to get your head around all that. Um, I don't know how I do it as well. I don't know. It's funny. It's funny, isn't it? You just, I've taken it on as a little bit of a hobby and mm. it's now not overtaken my life, but it's become part of my life. I mean, I, I have to post something every day now. I receive over 250 messages a day. So please don't send me any. No, please send me messages. I'll, I'll try and get back to them. But it's just, it's almost impossible to reply to them all. Although I'm getting a knack of doing that. I, I press the record button, just talk it. And then Siri writes my text for me. They're not always correct. So if you do get a message from me, it's a bit garbled because Siri doesn't understand me properly. Mm. But um, I, try and, I try and reply to everybody, um, especially young people wanting to become pilots and especially people that are nervous of flying as well. They're the ones that I prioritize mm. to try and get back to because I realize how important it is. And I realize the, the role I have to try and help people yeah. because, um, yeah, it's a responsibility. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, you're Nobody pays me for it, by the way. No, the no. No, people think, how much money do you make on Instagram? And I go, I don't make anything. No. Um, I do it because I enjoy it. I do it because it opens doors. You know, like last week I was invited to um, Farnborough by Gulfstream and Airbus as guests of both of those companies. So that was a really nice thing. I've been invited to fly with the Blades. I've been invited to go up again to, with the Blades or the 2XL to go flying in their 727 um, because they want me to see one of their um, North Sea 
um, oil dissipation runs that they do on the 77. There'll be more about that later. I've been I've been asked by many people to do many things, and I I'll never say no because I love to promote aviation. I've been gliding. That was fantastic. I've never done gliding before, so that was an incredible opportunity. Although you glide every time you work. Every time we go to work, we glide. We glide in a big 300-ton glider. But um, and another one, another cool one, is I've been invited to fly a Spitfire in the future. So that's oh, exciting. Nice. But that's what I do it for. I do it for having the opportunity to look at everything there is in aviation and then share it with everybody via mm. Instagram. Mm. I love. Uh, there's so many things I want to ask you about. Let me ask about the gliding. And I'm, I'm curious, were you at all nervous going up without any engines? Absolutely not at all. Because like you said, I understand aerodynamics and understand how the glider works. So once you're flung up into the sky, getting down is the easy bit, right? So, you know, the airplanes, I understand thermals. I went up with a very experienced um, pilot, an ex-Navy Harrier pilot. So he knew what he was doing. So we, um, we went up in this glider and I was just fascinated. I didn't realize that they were that good. I don't know what, I, like I said, I didn't know what to expect, but it was, I expected it to be no problem. I wasn't nervous at all. But finding a thermal and going up in the thermals was a really amazing experience. It was almost like fishing, I said. It was like you're out there trying to find out, you get it trying to catch the thermal. And then when you catch a thermal, you're right, stay in the thermal and you do a, a tight turn and go up and up and up and up. And then you get a bit of altitude, then you can glide a bit more and then you can find another thermal and go up. It's just, it's, it's like fishing and sailing together. You know, you're always trying to catch something. You're trying to catch the wind, trying to catch a thermal to then get you a little bit higher to a little bit further. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't even realize you can actually go on cross country flights in gliders, something that I didn't even realize. I thought you just went to your local airport, somebody flung you up in the sky and you then in your glider came back and landed. But no, you can go long distances from these things if you know what you're doing. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm definitely going to take it up as a hobby because I think it's amazing. I don't know why I never did it before. No. So that brings me to why did you become a pilot? That's an easy one. And it's, it's an easy and difficult one. So we've all got friends who are in their 50s who still don't know what they want to do with their life. We've all got those friends. I've got some great friends like that. And they've tried everything. And they've been successful, some and not so at the others. But they still don't know what they want to do with their life. And I sort of like, in a way, I think, wow, I wish my life was a bit like, more like that. Because when I was a 12-year-old boy, mm. I was on a family holiday. First time I'd ever been on an airliner. Um, as we were walking up the stairs of a trans-Australian airline 727, my father pushed me towards the, the flight attendant and said, oh, my son Christopher wants to see the flight deck. I didn't know what he was talking about, right? <laughs> he just made it up. He wanted to see the flight deck, and having a 12-year-old boy was a good way to get in there. So he said, my son wants to see the Brilliant. cockpit. And they said, yeah, yeah, sure. So next thing I was in this thing called the cockpit where there was three mm. men in there with lots of dials and knobs and switches, and I didn't know what I was looking at. And all I remember is the captain saying to my dad, would Christopher like to stay here for takeoff? And my dad said, yes, he'd love to. So he left. These guys strapped me into a seat, which I know is a jump seat behind the captain. And I sit there absolutely dumbfound or mesmerized yes. watching these three men get this massive piece of equipment off the ground and into the sky as fast as I'd ever seen in my life. Because I was a kid, I'd been in a car before, but this thing just gets faster and faster and faster. And then eventually we're flying in the sky. I didn't, I didn't know what flying was. You know, I'd seen airplanes, obviously, but I'd never been in an airplane prior to this date. And here I was now in the cockpit. And I remember them so vividly turning around after, after they'd done their checks and we were now in the sky and the noise was now behind us. And the captain looked at me and he said, so what do you think of that? And my mouth was just open. And I was just like looking at them dumbfounded. And I just said, is this your job? And they, went, they laughed at me, which didn't help a 12-year-old boy very much. And I went, no, really, is this your job? And they went, yeah, we're pilots. I went, yeah, I suppose, yeah, you're pilots, aren't you? Do you get paid for this? And they all laughed at me again. 
And that was it. And I thought, I want to be a pilot. That's it. I, I want to be in this cockpit with these yeah. guys. And yeah. so now here we are 40 something years later, I'm thinking I can do that for young kids mm. via Instagram. 55% of my followers are between 25 and 35. That's the biggest group. And the next biggest group is younger than 25. So all of those people I'm influencing to become a pilot, hopefully I'm doing a good job of it. And that's why I like Instagram as a medium to show kids, hey, when I was 12, I got to sit in the cockpit, but now you can't sit in the cockpit anymore. That's just the rules and how they are, but I can still take you behind the cockpit door and show you what yeah. we do and hopefully inspire you and motivate you to consider a job in aviation or a career in aviation. Oh, that's brilliant. I mean, your, your stuff has been brilliant. I mean, the fact you're managing it once a day, that's a that's a pressure in itself, isn't it? Yeah, I know. It's a bit. Of, we all have pressure in our life. I've also got to try and go jogging and keep fit, so that's another pressure. It's just like that. It's just something you do. Yeah, yeah. So it's become like a habit for you. Yeah. Yeah, it is a habit. I wake up every morning. My wife doesn't like it. She said, um, "Get off your bloody phone." But yeah, no, I'm always on my phone and always checking for messages. And yeah, you know, I just I just do it. It's part of my life now. Mm. Yeah, you know, I try not to distract too much with my family time, but it does. It just it takes yeah. over sometimes. Yeah, I'm not surprised. You're getting 250 messages a day. So uh, I haven't looked recently, but what, what are your followers up to now? Today, it'll probably go through 350,000. <sighs> That's a responsibility, isn't it? Don't say that now. I'm yeah, 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 it's good. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I just like to educate, inspire, you know, yeah. motivate and entertain. Yeah, you're definitely doing that. So let me, a couple of quick fire questions then. What What's the best bit about being a pilot for you? The best bit about being the pilot is being able to see the world differently to other people. Most people who travel the world, they plan a holiday and they say, this year we're going to go to Rome or this year we're going to go to Dubai. Or, this I get to go to all these places regularly and seeing the world for a day or 24 hours, you know the lifestyle as well, just for 24 hours, sometimes is enough just to get a, mm. an idea of where you might want to mm. take your next holiday. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, have you ever been scared whilst, being, whilst piloting? Every pilot has been scared. I don't think... This is a good question, again, for your listeners, especially. Pilots aren't the bravest people in the world. They're just regular people. And yes, every single pilot has been scared in an airplane. Hopefully, they've been scared in a small airplane, and that's what made them a better pilot in a big airplane. I think I don't think a pilot's a good pilot unless they've been scared at least once, twice, or three, or more times. If it's, if it's a lot more times, you shouldn't be flying. But if you scared yourself a few times, you've become a good pilot. Mm. Awesome. I've got a few more like that. What's... What are you, what's been your best trip or best memory from all your flying career? Best memory was flying into Hong Kong's Kai Tak Airport. There's a very young 30-year-old A340-300 captain with, sorry about the noise in the background, somebody's doing some building, A340-300 captain into Kai Tak, Hong Kong Airport with my dad on the jump seat and one of my brothers on another jump seat. Oh, that was a pretty amazing memory. That is awesome. That is great, isn't it? Cool. Can't put a price on that. No, no, no. It's just it's one of those best memories ever. Yeah. And I know that the problem with your podcast, right, is that anyone who's listening now will say, don't let it end. So when somebody comes on who's popular, they'll say, yeah, can you just let them stay on? So I'm, I'm I know I'm having to wrap my brains thinking about other questions. I want to ask you tons of stuff. But yeah, no, one, of my, one of my talents that I've been told is talking. I don't know if it's a talent or a skill, but yeah, I can I cannot stop talking. And oh, that's brilliant. Going, oh, so, just shut them up. Oh, no, I love it. So what about then tips for nervous flyers? Then I know that's it's not your bag, but I think you've probably, what would you say? It's right. Yeah. So everybody's, 
everybody at some stage of their life is a nervous flyer. And I say the best tip is do not ever watch those. I didn't what they call air crash investigation yeah, programs. Program. That's just they're awful. They're not doing any benefit for you. Mm. But watch videos on aircraft taking off, aircraft landing. And I say this is how silly one. Go gliding. Book yourself in for a gliding lesson or a um, introductory flight in a light aircraft. Because the big problem that I see that most people have is it's the unknown. They get on a big jet and think, oh my God, what's that noise? What's that noise? Oh, it's really, you know, why is that doing that? Why are the wings doing that? Why are the wings falling apart? You know, that people are scared because mm. they don't know. And it's just that mm. the, the fact that people don't know what they're doing or the, what the aircraft's doing, I should say. But if they go on an introductory flight, whether it be on a Cessna or a glide or something like that, just going out with an instructor, I think that's probably one of the best things they can do because they think, wow, I can fly an airplane. It's not that difficult. And it's not that difficult. There's obviously a lot to learn to get a license, but going up in a glider or a light aircraft is probably one of the best ways I would recommend people to overcome any fear of flying. But that's just my thing. You're the mm. expert. Mm. Yes, it can be. It can be really helpful. I often say if you don't like turbulence, it's probably not the good route because you yes yeah, yeah because you're going to move a lot more in a little aircraft but if you want to understand how it all works it's perfect because you do get to see it all firsthand and to experience the realness of it all and i think it's quite stunning i did have some flying lessons myself and i i remember just thinking wow it's just just amazing isn't it because I mean, yes. in a large aircraft it's like being they're so huge you can lose sight of the fact that you're actually flying. You know, it doesn't, well, I do, you know, I can just go to sleep. And again, like, as you just said, with the turbulence thing, yeah, probably gliding isn't the right thing to do if you don't like turbulence, because gliding is all about finding the turbulence to get mm. up. I mean, turb turbulence is thermals, yeah. and the air gliders need those thermals. They, they need that turbulence to gain altitude. So mm. if, the, if the turbulence is your problem, don't go gliding. But go up in a light aircraft on a nice winter's morning. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. So what about when you travel and you're in, you know, you just, you go out on an aircraft, you're a passenger, what are you like? I regularly commute between France and the UK. And yes, I'm, I suppose I'm a, um, I'm, I, I never stop being an examiner or a, a trainer. I sit there and I think, oh, he's using the rudder too much. Oh, he's got far too much rudder in for that crosswind takeoff or landing. But I mean, I'm, <laughs> nobody else in the airplane realises that. And I was actually, here's, a, here's one for your listeners. I was actually on a flight once from Paris to Toulouse with Air France and I was just sitting there looking out the window I think I was reading a book and then I heard the engine that was near me I was over near a wing the power went up on that engine and I could quite distinctly hear the power on the other engine going down I looked around the cabin because I realized that we'd lost one of, you know, one of the engines had stopped operating nobody else on the airplane realized and I was looking around going does anybody else realized and nobody did they were reading their books they were watching their iPhones they were listening to music they were sleeping and I guarantee you, I was probably, apart from the cabin crew and the pilots, because I saw them rushing up and down, I was the only person on that plane that realised that one yeah. of the engines stopped running. And then the aeroplane did a very, very slow turn back towards Paris, and nobody said anything. And again, I'm, I'm looking around thinking, I really am the only person that's realised this. And then we came back, and then eventually the captain made a PA, and he said, oh, hello, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've had a problem with one of our engines, and we're going back into Paris. So was it a big deal? It wasn't a big deal, mm. right? Every single person on that airplane, once we landed, would have been calling their friends. Oh my God, well, I've been on an airplane. One of the engines failed. And we had to return, and they'd make a massive big drama about it. But as I just said, the airplane just did a nice slow descent, came back into Paris, landed perfectly well on one engine, and then um, I actually waited around and then got another flight a little bit later back down to Toulouse. 
Whereas a lot of people, not a lot of people, a few people probably wouldn't have because they're probably a bit yeah. concerned or scared. And that's an interesting thing, because I'm very mindful of time, but that's an interesting point you've made, because I think you have to be really, really careful what you let into your head. So anyone's listening, follow Captain Chris if you're not already. I mean, you like a few more followers. He's only getting three, 250 messages a day. So yeah, he's starting to cry now. You can't see this. On no, the there's more while we're talking now. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's amazing what you do and really, really grateful. I know I've been pestering you for a long time you're a busy guy you've been doing what you do i can't tell you enough how grateful i am for you giving you time and coming on today and hopefully inspiring a few more people to follow you and also to learn what's really going on that's the most important thing just to educate people on what's really going on behind the cockpit door and to assure every single one of the people that, that listen to your podcast that flying is the safest way you can get from point A to point B. And I would always fly instead of drive or take a helicopter or a motorbike or a boat or even walking. Flying safer than walking. Crossing the road is dangerous these days. Get on an aeroplane if you can. Captain Chris, thank you very much. Okay, see you, Paul.